This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 150, Adaptation. I'm adapting already. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in. Fair warning, this week's episode may sound more like a lesson for preachers than normal, but I'm confident that any child of God will find a way to adapt it for personal use. See what I did there? We will cover the difference between being adjustable and being spineless, the importance of good source material for movie makers and for Christians, why my new bumper music should be reminding you of Swing Low Sweet Chariot, and why a designer would want to rip off his own board game. Let's start with what I've been preaching. And by the way, this is the Swing Low Sweet Chariot part right here. Listen carefully. Yeah, I don't get it either. Anyway, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19 and following. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And that last verse that sometimes gets cut off in this quotation is really the key to all of this. Paul is all things to all men. What does that mean exactly? Well, what it doesn't mean is that he is tailoring his gospel to fit his audience. Because he's doing all things for the sake of the gospel, the one gospel, the one that he said was the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes in Romans 1 verse 16. Any other gospel, any contrary gospel is accursed along with the one who's preaching it according to Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. But there's a difference between changing our gospel and changing our approach. We need to keep God's purposes in mind and distinguish them from our own purposes because those two things are not always the same. Are you the one who is adjusting, or are you asking Jesus to adjust? In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul read, For this reason we also constantly thank God, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. We're not evangelizing the gospel of Hal, or the gospel of Paul, or the gospel of any other human being. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't adjust Jesus. We don't adjust the message. Adjusting our own approach, that can be a good thing. In fact, usually it's a good thing. But we need to be able to distinguish between changing the way that we present the gospel and the actual truth that we are claiming is hidden in the gospel. Ask yourself also, is the cause of Christ being promoted or being thwarted by your activity? It's very easy, again, to assume that simply because we are naming the name of Jesus, we are honoring the things that he stands for. That's not always the case. It's a lot easier to preach our own agenda than it is Jesus' agenda. It's the most natural thing in the world to preach things that lift us up in the eyes of others. You, as a courier of the gospel of Jesus Christ, need to be more responsible than that. Paul writes about the other kind of preacher in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 and following. 
Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. It's a horrible thing to think about gospel preachers being described in this kind of terminology, but that's what Paul is saying here. There are people out there who are serving themselves. They are preaching so that they will be benefited. If the changes that we are making are to enhance our own personal bottom line and have nothing to do with Jesus, they are not pushing his cause forward. They may even be pulling his cause back. That is an indication that we are on the wrong road. Do you find yourself preserving your own conscience or your own preference? Your conscience is rooted in the gospel, or should be, certainly. We have trained our conscience to know good and evil. We have read God's word. We have trained ourselves to know what is a good thing and what is a bad thing, what will and will not promote God's holiness, God's righteousness in our own lives and the lives of others. But ultimately, there is a distinction between genuine Bible-based pangs of conscience and just the way that we would rather do things. Paul writes in Romans chapter 15 and verse 1 and 2, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And that word edification is such a powerful thing. The building up, the strengthening. We are looking at helping other Christians, helping other humans grow in their faith, grow in their service allowing one another to exist in fellowship as long as God's word is not actually being violated. Instead of becoming more like Hal or more like anybody else that you might run across, you need to find a way to be more like Jesus. And if we will all have that kind of attitude, if we are all striving toward Jesus things, then a lot of this personal preference stuff is going to be taken care of because we know intuitively that none of us is perfect and therefore none of us is always going to be right. So insisting that we are right and that we must be respected, that we must be honored, that our preferences must hold sway at all times, that's a clear indication that we do not have the Spirit of Christ. You owe it to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to the Lord to be adjustable in adjustable things, just as much as you're supposed to be rigid in the things of the gospel. This is what I've been reading. Alfred Hitchcock, the movie director, hardly ever, if ever, worked with original material. He always adapted existing material. One of the books that he adapted was The 39 Steps by John Buchan, which I'd never read. I happened upon it recently in a used bookstore, and I grabbed it. Because not only is it a book good enough to grab Alfred Hitchcock's attention, it's also just a really great read. Good enough for another movie maker 30 years later to pick up on it and adapt it again. If you go to Netflix or Roku or wherever you get your movies, you may notice that two very different movies have been made from this book, both called The 39 Steps. Very different plots, very different backgrounds, and yet basically holding to the same core idea of a network of spies and international intrigue and crazy stuff going on and a person trying to defend himself and the best way to defend himself is to find the truth of all of this and fix the problem and save the day, etc. 
So I wasn't necessarily surprised when I read the book and found out that the book itself is quite different from both of the movies. But there is that core, that center line that you hold to when you read the book, the idea of being unjustly accused and trying to find the truth. You get the idea. Hitchcock's approach to movie making was to start with good material. And that inspires me somewhat as a preacher because essentially I am doing an adapted screenplay every week. I am taking God's word. I certainly better be taking God's word. And I am tweaking it. I'm mixing it up. I'm trying to find common themes, common topics, elaborate, bring in perhaps a little bit of personal experience or analogies that I've found from my life or from the life of others, et cetera, things I've been reading, and present the same story that the Bible is presenting, but do it in a new way, a fresh way, an effective way that will get this core idea across, hopefully never deviating from this basic idea, because ultimately that's what it's all about. We're trying to tell not just a story, we're trying to tell the story. And it's important for us when we talk to people about the Bible, when we talk about whether it is from the pulpit or whether it's in a private Bible study, whatever your circumstance happens to be, start with good source material, which is to say start with the Bible. Any kind of spiritual conversation has to start here. And I have to kind of drag myself kicking and screaming into making this point because it seems so evident to me. Where else would you start? The fact of the matter is there are lots of places to start and lots of places where people claiming to be Christians, claiming to be serving Jesus Christ, do in fact start. They start somewhere else and they never manage to seem to get back to the Bible. We need to do better than that. The source material is too good for us to ignore. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 19, Peter writes here, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The idea that the Bible is not for anyone's interpretation is explained very neatly by the apostle here. He says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Peter is saying here, I did not decide for myself, nor did Paul, nor did John, nor did any other inspired teacher. I did not decide for myself what the best way to honor God would be, the best way to serve Jesus would be, and then write that down and use that as my gospel. This thing that I'm preaching came from God. And that's the same kind of thing that we should be saying when we read God's Word, because the message that Peter preached is the same message that Peter wrote down, and therefore the same message that I read when I read First and Second Peter. And the same thing goes, of course, for any other inspired writer in the New Testament. By taking that source material, by rooting myself in that, not in human philosophy, not in current trends, not in popular vote, but rather exactly what the gospel has always said, by rooting myself in that material, I have confidence that I'm not going to be able to adapt my way out of truth. It's important also to give credit where credit is due. As far as the movie writers may drift from the original plot, it's still the 39 steps. And so John Buchan gets the credit. He wrote the book. He gave us the idea. We played with it a little bit, but it's his idea. And likewise, when we are preaching the gospel, we need to give God the glory, first of all. This is not 
some clever thing that I came up with. I may have come up with an approach. I may have come up with an illustration, but this is not me working. This is God working. God gets the glory. God gets the attention. God gets the vast majority of the praise. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men. For I neither received it from men, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus told me what to say, and that's what I said. And if we have some secondary influence, if I got an idea for an illustration from a preacher friend of mine, or from a book that I read, or whatever, that's appropriate also. And when we don't give credit where credit is due, whether it's to God or to anybody else, we have to wonder why we're hogging it for ourselves. This should not be about making ourselves impressive. This is about honoring God and accomplishing His purposes in our life. But ultimately, when we're handling God's Word, we should not content ourselves with simply saying, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, and that's it. We don't want to underestimate the importance of reading the Bible, obviously, or encouraging other people to do so. But there must be a place for us to handle the Bible and use it appropriately in a given circumstance for a particular person, for a particular audience. We need to be more than simply a recording of the text or a recording of another teacher. We need to be able to do what Jesus did. Take the teaching of Isaiah, for instance, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, and say, when Isaiah was talking about people who were teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men, that's what you're doing right now. That's application of God's word. That's what we need to be able to do. Our obligation as couriers of the gospel is to apply the gospel in a given circumstance, not just say, Mark 16, 16 says, believe and be baptized, but rather to look our neighbor in the eye and say, you need to believe. You need to be baptized. Being able to handle the word accurately, as 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 says, that's going to show us to be a worker that does not need to be ashamed. This is what I've been hearing. When Antonin Dvorak came to America in the 1890s, it was for the express purpose of studying American native music and writing a symphony that properly reflected the idea of what an American symphony could be. He called it the New World Symphony. If you think you've never heard it before, take a listen for a second. This is from the second movement of the symphony, the Largo. It is not adapted. It is straight up ripped off in a tune that we know as Going Home. I have heard it any number of times in movies, uh, usually at funerals, military funerals especially. And it's just about the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And here goes Hal sounding off about orchestral music again. Sorry, apologies. We won't do this every week, I promise. But that's an example of how a tune gets passed from one generation to another. And it adapts. It grows. It blossoms. 
There's all kinds of stories about country music in the American South being adapted from the music from Irish and Scottish settlers that had come and brought their violins and made their old music a new form of music. Music is always evolving. It's always changing. And Dvorak's Ninth is a great example of this. You take a tune or a series of tunes that existed in a prior form, and they're tweaked, they are brought together, they are assembled, they are adapted, and you get this amazing compilation, 40 minutes of some of the best orchestral music I've ever heard, one of my new favorites. And then that music itself is adapted, and a piece of it is taken away, a particular tune is taken away and turned into a song, an anthem, a dedication in some other context. And a new generation comes to love it, to adore it. I found myself thinking when I was listening to the New World Symphony, it sounds a lot like Aaron Copeland, who is perhaps the preeminent American composer. Copeland, of course, wrote considerably after Dvorak. I think it's reasonable to assume that instead of Dvorak sounding a lot like Copeland, it's probably the other way around. It's Copeland sounding like Dvorak. Such has been the case ever since Jubal. We're told back in Genesis chapter 4, a man named Jubal of the line of Cain essentially invented music. And we've been singing ever since. We've been playing ever since. Maria von Trapp taught us all about Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti. And we've been stringing these little notes together and coming up with things that we like, that please us. And then we give them to our children and they do something with it and their children do something else with it. And the music continues to grow. The music continues to inspire. Hopefully, at least, each generation takes the best of what had gone before and builds on it and does something remarkable with it. So as to keep the story alive. If we're doing it properly, the stories that we tell build on the same foundation that has been laid before. This is the way the gospel is spread. This is how we as the people of God continue to grow the story of Jesus Christ. We continue to grow the story of his church. Not in the sense that we are inventing new doctrine. Not in the sense that we are doing something remarkable. But the gospel looks different in the 21st century than it looked in the 1st century. It looks different now than it did in the 20th century when I was coming up. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. There is a sense in which we modernize the gospel. There is a sense in which we modernize the presentation of the gospel. As we've mentioned already, not that we are leaving our roots, not that we are changing the gospel itself, but we continue to build where Jesus Christ has placed us. And the body that emerges at the end of the story in our lifetime looks somewhat different than it did in my father's or my grandfather's time. But it's still Jesus. It's still the body of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verses 10 and following, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 2, talking about the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone in that foundation. That same one gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
still exists. It is still the foundation. That solid rock that Jesus called himself in his words that we build on. That foundation hasn't changed. That foundation hasn't moved. It's still exactly where it has always been. And that's where we build. The building that we construct in the 21st century, by necessity, is going to look different from the 1st century or the 19th century or any other period of time. But ultimately, it has to be built on Jesus. We can't build anywhere else. It may turn out, as Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that the work turns out to be made out of stubble or wood or worthless things instead of gold and silver and precious jewels. That's unfortunate. But we do the best we can where we are with what we have, ourselves personally and our neighbors, our culture that we're surrounded by. It may be that we can't build very much of anything where we happen to be. But better to build a structure on Jesus that may not accomplish all that we would want, that may not even last as long as we would wish, than build someplace else and build an amazing structure, the most beautiful building ever, but that ultimately does not bring glory to God. This is what I've been playing. When Tracy and I first started getting into board gaming, we were immediately drawn to games that played well with two players. We're planning for the future. We knew that we would not be able to rope Kylie and Taylor into our game-playing lifestyle forever, that ultimately it was going to be the two of us, even when the kids were still in the house. Lots of times we needed a game that only two players would be playing. And we did some research, and over and over again, the same game kept coming back. If you're playing games with two players, you need to play Castles of Burgundy. A very famous game by Stefan Feld that has been known for, for many years now. We got it, we played it, we loved it. And we continue to play it. So a couple of years ago, Mr. Feld decided that he would tweak Burgundy and come up with a brand new game called Castles of Tuscany. We heard it was coming out that it was going to be very, very much like Burgundy. And the question obviously comes up, is it different enough for us to own both? Because we had no intention of giving up Castles of Burgundy. We decided to give it a shot. And we like it. We like it a lot. The gameplay has changed here and there. But ultimately, you can tell where the game came from. You can see its roots. And we were not necessarily surprised to hear that Tuscany was not going to catch on like Burgundy did. People kept saying, we play it, we like it. But about halfway through the game, we look around the table and everybody's saying the same thing. Yeah, it's good. But I wish we were playing Castles of Burgundy. Simply being connected to success doesn't mean you're successful. You need to be outstanding in your own right. You need to have something of substance, something of value of your own, rather than simply glomming onto the success of somebody else. There's a terrific story given to us in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus. As Paul is preaching there and doing remarkable things, there are seven men who are all sons of a priest named Sceva, and they are attempting to cast out demons because Paul was able to cast out demons. And they would come up to the demon-possessed person and say, I adjure you by Jesus Christ whom Paul preaches, be cast out. And on one occasion, the demon spoke back. 
and said, I know Jesus. I know Paul. I don't know you. Almost humorous the way that people can attribute success to themselves because they are in proximity of the success of others. I want you to not be satisfied with that. It may be that you have a life much like mine. My parents are Christians. My grandparents were Christians. If you are part of the Lord's Church in Central Texas, there's a good chance you know about the Hammonds family. And I'm glad to wear the name. But hopefully I am contributing to the legacy in a positive way of the work of my family in this area, rather than simply existing on the laurels of my mom and dad, as marvelous as those laurels may be. It's not enough to just trace a lineage back to your parents or back to the preacher that baptized you, or even back to the apostles and to Jesus Christ himself. You need to be making a mark for Jesus on your own. And that's not meant to sound individualistic. That's not meant to sound prideful. That's to say, find a way that you personally can grow in your faith, that you can exercise your faith, you can practice your faith, and be recognized for your faith. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And he gives some tips on how to do that, by the way. Verse 13 reads, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, exactly how you will carry this out may be a little different than it was with Timothy. But I assure you, there is a way for you to grab hold of the gospel, to put it in your hands, to put it in your mouth, and to carry it to the world, to carry it to your brethren, carry it to your family, and make a difference, to make an impact for Jesus Christ. We don't do this in a prideful way. We don't do this simply so that we'll be remembered in some general and arrogant sort of way. We do it so that the world can see our good works and glorify our Heavenly Father, as Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. This is the legacy that you can leave, not simply being the latest in a long line, as wonderful as that is, but being remarkable, being an individual. They glorified Jesus in his or her own personal and wonderful way. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.